now for the Faith FM Breakfast Show with your hosts, Lyle and Lawson. Welcome, everybody. You're listening on 87.6, or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network. Special shout-out this morning to all those living in Townsville, Queensland, on 87.8, Nihil in, oh, in Victoria, 88.0, Birdwood in South Australia, also on 88.0. If you're listening from one of those transmitters, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. Drop us a line. I don't think it's Nihil. I think it's just nil. Right? Well, it's N-H-I-L. How do you spell, how do you pronounce N-H-I-L? Someone from N- I think it's Hill just nil. in Victoria. Nil. Well, there's nothing there that says the H is silent. Yeah. I don't know. I read that and I feel like it is. It's nil. nil. So there's no place called... That's, what, place that's why exist. they put the H in. Because they wanted to call it nil, but it would rock the system if they called it nil. So they put the H in there. So that people know it's Does a real this place. place actually exist? But this is a conspiracy. Is it just nil? <laughs> or is it nil? Do any of these places exist? We need to know. Victorians, give us a call here this morning. 0491-064-669. Solve this problem for us. Nihil. Is nil. it nihil or nil? And does it exist? Does it exist? Is there such a place? Or mm. is it just nil? <laughs> is there nothing there? I want to know. I need to know the answer to this. Somebody help us out here this morning. We need to find this one out. Lawson, real quick, uh-huh. what are you thankful for? I played basketball last night. You're a fool. <laughs> and I, You're a fool. Lawson I just, is officially a fool. I'm, I was fine. I'm, no, I'm all good. No, I'm walking today. No, Praise no, the Lord. No. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. We're about to have a question for the quiz, and Lawson is about to bring it for you. Guys, this is your last day. The last couple of opportunities to be able to get into the quiz. Here's your first question. According to the book of Hebrews, what is hidden from God's sight? A, our hearts. B, the devil's schemes. C, our internet activities. Or D, nothing. 0491064. So the answer could be nil. It could be. It could be. It could be. Might not be. But without a H. Again, 0491064669 is the number to call or text. And again, that question was, according to Hebrews, what is hidden from God's sight? A, our hearts. B, the devil's schemes. C, our inter- internet activities. Or D, nothing. Zero four nine one zero six four six six nine is the number to call or text. If you know the answer, you will text and call that number with the correct answer and go into the draw to win our Bible study companion box set, The Conflict of the Ages, probably one of the greatest, one of the greatest and most amazing commentaries spanning from before the book of Genesis to after the book of Revelation. You can get it absolutely for free, provided, again, you answer these questions correctly. If you want any terms and conditions in regards to our quiz, you can head to our website, faithfm.com.au. But again, that question is, according to Hebrews, what is hidden from God's sight? A, our hearts. B, the devil's schemes. C, our internet activities. Or D, nothing. All right, here's a fun fact for you, Lawson. Uh-huh. Did you know that in Nihil, there are living over 100 Karens? What? Yes, there's a 100 Karens in the hill. How do you know that? Uh, I looked it up. 
How many Karens? Yes. Live in. Isn't that a logical thing to look up? No. If you're trying to find out about a town, you want to know how many Karens live there. Well, apparently there's a hundred. What's the total population of Mill? That's 1,700 odd. Yeah. By the way, I'm standing. So the Karens, the Karens there make up, uh, 5.4% of the population. Wow. Yes. Dude, this, is this the Karen capital of the world? Is that like the highest Karen to person ratio? In, no, in I would world? I would not think so. I would think that there would be places in Myanmar where there would be a much higher r- ratio of Karens. Oh, is that because they're Karen? <laughs> 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 That's the dumbest joke, Lyle. <laughs> Actually, speaking speaking of nil, I looked up the population Karens. and it's pronounced nil. Yeah, it's just your computer. That's Siri. What would Siri do? No, know? no, no. Siri knows okay, nothing. so there's this website where yeah, it's like nah. it has a bunch of different uh, pronunciations, and then people from that place vote for which one's the most true. And how many people from the hill have voted on the hill? None. They okay. have, none well, of them have none. voted on nil, <laughs> but all of them have voted on nil. So I'm standing. How many, how many have voted on nil? How many have actually gone onto this website and looked it up and gone, people are pronouncing it wrong. I have to correct this. Nine. No, no, you're making this no, stuff there up. Is. There's you are totally nine making people, this up. Nine people voted for the nil pronunciation. Zero people voted for the nil pronunciation. So look, and nine people from a country, from a town with how many people? Seven hundred and something. Uh, we need to have some positive. Yeah, news. positively different news. Uh, Lyle is wrong. <laughs> Secondarily, <laughs> in our positively different news. Oh, actually, this is kind of sad, but good things come out of it. We talked about how NASA was sending a rocket with eight million pounds of thrust into yes. the atmosphere, to, and then they didn't. And then they didn't. Probably for good reasons. Yeah, well, they didn't want it to blow up. They didn't want it to blow up. Essentially, what took place, they were going to send the rocket off on Monday. But unfortunately, the engines wouldn't cool down into optimum operating temperature. Wise move. So they were like, they, send it up. they couldn't get them to cool. It was specifically only one engine. There's four engines on this rocket. They couldn't get one of the engines to cool down completely. Uh, they know why. They believe it's like an incorrect sensor uh, that wouldn't give the engine instructions on how it was supposed to cool down. Mm-hmm. And so now they have replanned the launch for yes, this. You do, not want to, you do not want to launch something like this with an overheating engine. Yeah. Look, we no one wants another challenge disaster. Nope. nope that nope. is probably the most harrowing thing that could ever happen. And they're like, we don't want to do this again. Now, is this a manned mission? Uh, I, I believe it is, right? I, I thought it was. Maybe it's not. I'm, Either which way, we don't want space debris raining down on our heads. That's right. Well, the main purpose of like this mission, the the Artemis mission, is to send it up and get it to come back down. Yes. That, that's what they're testing. So I believe this is an unmanned mission because there's, there's no shuttle attached to the rocket. Sure. So it's there's there's no people. But still, they're like, we just spent billions of dollars on this. What, how about... Not blow it up. Yes, let's not blow it up. Let's not blow it up. <laughs> let's not send it into space to absolutely blow into smithereens where we can't even retrieve it anymore. That's that's probably a good decision that they've made. But yeah, it's going to be sending off this weekend, and we'll be able to see the epic videos of, of eight million pounds of thrust just flying into the air, which is so amazing. Another quick story here. This is something that I've also covered on the radio show before. The idea that well. What was an idea 
uh, of from California of them covering canals with solar panels. Now that was like there was this like landmark, amazing 2021 research paper that was like if we put solar panels on top of canals in California where it barely rains, not only will we save a massive amount of water from evaporation... We'll make electricity at the same time. We'll make electricity at the same time. It was, you know... Two wins at once. Published by UC Berkeley, and the government listened and responded. And they were like, this is good research. This is something we want to invest in and we want to do. Now they are actioning it. The project is... Do these float or or are they suspended over the top? They are suspended over the top. Right, so just Uh, providing shade. That's right, because, like... The canal isn't wide enough to... I guess it could be wide enough, but then you'd have small solar panels that would be liable to kind of, like, bump off the edges and whatnot. Cause we, yeah, yeah, floating ones would be problematic. The water level goes down. I guess they would sit on the mud and that yeah, that's might, right. might not be a good thing. Whereas these ones are suspended. There is a one-mile stretch of canal that it suspends over, and then there's, like, a 200-metre stretch of the canal that kind of goes through an S-bend that they sit over... As well, the project will cost around $20 million, which is... It's a chunk. It's a chunk. But I'm thinking it's like, how much does it cost to pave, like, like to bitumen, like, a mile of road? Like, I don't yeah. think it's $20 million, but it's still considerably expensive. Absolutely. So, but regardless... They are. I, I think this is amazing. Like, dude, a one a one mile stretch of solar panels that not only saves you water but also is making like power. That's in, that is an incredible amount. I wonder how much water they actually save over that one kilometer stretch. Be interesting to know. Yeah. Well, this is like it would be significant. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. This is their first step. You know, yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. Chuck twenty, like I'm talking about, like an economy like California's as well. What, what is it like the eighth biggest economy in the the world? Like twenty million dollars is a drop in the bucket to them yes. to to invest in this technology to see. Okay, on this one mile stretch, how much money do we, like how much water do we save? How much electricity to, cre- to cre- do we create? And then from there, they can action even you know bigger plans to be able to do this. So I think this is. Amazing. I guess the thing that goes through my mind is that. To really save a lot of water, we need to create floating ones so that we can cover dams mm-hmm. because that's where you're going to get massive amounts of evaporation. Yeah, that's right. The problem is if you cover the dams with solar panels, then what happens when the bushfire comes through? How are you going to reload your firefighting aircraft? Mm. It might be an issue. Yeah. that Yeah, that's like you can imagine the tough thing. Would, well, ultimately. If you well, just, you don't have to cover the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. You just have a tap that comes out of the dam, you know, big big tap then yeah no no not quite <laughs> hey finally uh i got a story here because of african swine flu or african swine fever there has now been a restriction put on taking meats to different countries in europe for travelers yes the restriction is now in the eu you can only travel with two kilos of swine well, then don't travel with any at all. That's just a much better idea. Like, Bible says don't eat dead pigs, so don't eat dead, dead <laughs> like, pigs. I, I, and you don't need to feed them to somebody else either. I read this. I was like, how is this a restriction? All we have to do here, yeah, that's right, how is that a restriction? But <laughs> all you have to do here is to follow what the Bible says and swine flu problem is solved. Amen. Amen. I totally agree. And also, you know. Follow what the Bible says. We would never have COVID. We would never have monkeypox. We would never have yep. swine flu. You know, and it's so like swine flu would never bother us, I should say. It's like, oh, how do we stop the spread of African swine fever? Well, don't put them in factory farms. Just 
let him go. Yep. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Facebook. We're about to have more serious news before we do. Another question for our quiz. Let's get into our next question for the quiz. Fill in the blank. Every word of God is pure. He is a blank. Unto them that put their trust in him. 0491-064-669. Again, the prize for this morning is the amazing Conflict of the Ages box set, which we will give to you absolutely for free. An amazing commentary that will bless you so much. We have read it here in the studio. We have read these books, and they are incredible. Again, that question was, every word of God is pure. He is a blank unto them that put their trust in him. 0491-064-669. Okay, so one of the more interesting religious groups around the world is the Amish, primarily located in Pennsylvania in the United States, but in other areas as well. And this particular religious group lives a pre-industrial lifestyle. Mm. And so if you travel to these particular areas, you can buy Amish-made products and they are always going to be of extremely high quality and handmade Mm. and people pay a premium for them. Also for the farm products that they produce, you pay you pay serious money to buy produce from an Amish farm because it is produced without the use of, you know, unnatural fertilizers, mm. sprays and so forth. So we've got this farm in a place, a village called Bird in the Hand in Pennsylvania. It's been around for about 30 years. It supplies pretty much everything from grass-fed beef to cheese to raw milk, organic eggs, uh, to dairy from grass-fed water buffalo, interestingly, mm. and all types of produce. Uh, it sells to a club, has its own personal club of about 4,000 members, which is a private food club, mem- uh, a food club, and these are local people and people who will actually travel in to buy top-quality, preservative-free, organic food. Mm. And anywhere where you go where you buy organic food, you're going to pay a premium for it. Yeah, that's right. And particularly if you're buying it from the Amish, uh, of course, this is food that has been grown with, you know, a couple of horses out there pulling a plough. That's epic. (laughs) It's just amazing. You should see how they build their houses and their barns and so forth. It's just off the charts. But anyway, be that as may... uh, these private food club members have really appreciated their freedom to get food from an independent farmer mm. that isn't processing his meat and dairy at a US Department of Agriculture facility and uh, that it is preservative free. Please, please don't tell me that they're trying to get the FDA is trying to shut them down. FDA went in there with armed no. agents, raided the place, <laughs> gave them a cease and desist and handed out... $300,000 in fines. What? No. What? Are you serious? I am dead serious. So, <laughs> $300,000 in fines? Yeah, well, they didn't hadn't had organic certified. This is the Amish. They don't do that. This is not something that the Amish do. They don't even use watches. Or tractors. <laughs> they don't use any of that stuff. This is this is the Amish you're talking about. And it's like, no, we're gonna go in there. With armed agents. Amish don't Amish people don't have guns. They don't have guns. I'm <laughs> uh, serious. It's it's, it's How just, do they expect them to pay for this? Well, 
this is the point that the article brings out, and that is that this will most definitely send this farm broke. This farm is done. It's broke, it's gone, it's done. Um, it will be sold up. And and these people are Amish. Like, what Yeah. What other option do they have? So this, this is basically religious persecution right here because they are practicing their religious beliefs, and their religious beliefs is that this is how you prepare food and this is how you sell food. And those are, they, those are their sincerely held religious convictions. Now, I don't share those convictions because I really like tractors. Yeah. They're one of my favorite things. I, one of my favorite things to do is to drive around on a tractor. I really like cars. I, yes. I, I don't, I don't I've been own to, horses. I've been to Amish areas in Pennsylvania and seen them, you know, they're heading up to Main Street of town in their horse and buggy. It's pretty awesome. Oh, actually, I saw like this video recently of like this Amish horse and cart people got into a car crash and then there was like a like scuffle because of it. it was kind of gnarly amish are human beings just like it was surprise surprise they have a fallen human nature like the rest of us mm. so anyway that's what's happening around the world and you kind of shake your head and wonder where is our world headed to when particularly in a, in a nation that prides itself on its religious liberty. Yeah. Talking about religious liberty, let's go to Western Australia and talk about the Law, Com, Law Reform Commission's report on uh, its review of the Equal Opportunity Act. Mm. Came through with 163 recommendations that the government, the McGowan government has broadly accepted. Mm. Recommendation 79 removes the right of faith-based schools to give preference to staff applicants who share the faith and worldview of the school. So we've seen this in Victoria. Uh, we're now seeing the same thing coming through in Western Australia where you have to hire your staff based on their qualifications as in their secular qualifications rather than their faith-based qualifications, by a faith-based school. And so this is kind of weird. You're going to run, say, for instance, an Adventist school or an Anglican school or a, or a Catholic school or whatever, but you're not going to have any staff from those faith groups? Mm. How, how is it Catholic or Anglican or Adventist if none of the staff share that faith? I'm, I'm thinking as well because the majority of... Christian schools or faith-based schools or private schools. Yes. And these private schools, there there are less private schools than state schools. Yes. And I'm just thinking like this, yeah, because ultimately... Okay, so, 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 so in many ways, the schools, if they accept this, deserve it because they didn't get together and stand against it. Yeah, but I'm also thinking, I'm like, for a teacher is there like for a teacher that isn't a faith-based teacher like that isn't that, that, that doesn't share in the faith of the particular school that they which there are many of yeah but like are they wanting to go to those schools like there are many of them so what what you've got is that if you're a secular person and you want to work say in a catholic school you can go and apply for that job mm. you may not get that job because you're not roman catholic mm. right there will be others that will be preferenced ahead of you because they share the faith, even though they may be less qualified. Mm. And the school has the right to do so because they want to present a Catholic education. Mm -hmm. uh, the You may get that job, but if you do get that job, you will be required to live and to teach in accordance with the faith of the Roman yeah. Catholic Church. 
you can't go in there and live and model a lifestyle that is against the faith of the Catholic Church or teach things that are, you know, I couldn't go and teach there and stand up in class and say, you know, auricular confession is wrong. Yeah. I couldn't stand up in class and say the celibacy of the priesthood is wrong. I could get a, I yeah. could get a job there uh-huh. as a teacher, but I can't do that. Uh-huh. And I can't even say it in my actions, mm-hmm. so I can't model it. Mm-hmm. So I can't silently just sort of do it. I'm not allowed to do those kind of things because this school is trying to create a Roman Catholic environment where people who support that kind of education can send their children, and they have every right to do so. Yeah. As does an Anglican school or an Adventist school or whatever other kind of Pentecostal school uh, that there might be out there. Yeah. I think that this this legislation ultimately takes away the ability for parents to consent to the type of inf- uh, the parents to consent to the type of education that they want for their children. Yeah, that's right. That you basically You're the government consent. looks at parents and says you are only allowed to have one kind of you education. are not capable of deciding what type of education your children should receive. Uh, you are incapable to do so, even though you're, they're your parents. You're, you're the parents. Because if you don't want to send your kid to a faith-based school, then you don't send them there. Particularly, and I said yeah. this point before, faith-based schools are usually private. That's they right. cost more to go to yes. than to a state school. That's right. So, like, there is an overwhelming abundance of options Yes, to go to state schools, mm-hmm. but now they're taking away your choice to send someone to a private school that's faith-based because you yourself might want your children to have faith-based education. Yes. So, this is, like, ridiculous. And here's the, other, here's the other bizarre thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in my current job right here, let's say that I... Um, you know, do something immoral, immoral, I might be sleeping around or whatever. I get Mm. fired from my job, and that's absolutely fair enough. That's a code of practice that I'm violating. If I was a chaplain at a school, I could not be fired because it's not illegal. Yikes. Yeah, as a chaplain. Oh. That's pretty crazy stuff right there. All right, we're going to move on. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Go to our interview of the day. Super excited about this one. We're going to be talking about Persia, but before we do, we have another question for our quiz. The light of the body is what? Pretty simple one there. 0491-064-669 is the number to call or text. You will go into the draw, which is coming at around 8.30, so oh, 8.45 in about an hour's time. 0491-064-669. Again, that question was, the light of the body is in the what? Well, joining us on the phone this morning is our breakfast show historian, Eliza Southwell. Eliza, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Lyle. Now, I understand today we're going to be talking about the history of Christianity in Persia, which is something that we often don't think too much about when we think of Persia today or the modern-day Islamic Republic of Iran. We sort of think of a place that is very Mm. hostile to Christianity. Mm. However, when I was travelling through Iran, our tour guide explained to us that there are four religions that are recognised in Iran, uh, obviously Islam, uh, along with Judaism, uh, Zoroastrianism and Christianity, and all of them have a representative at government. How old um, is the history of Christianity in Iran? I did not know that they are representative at government today. That's very interesting. Hmm. Um, the history of Christianity in Iran goes all the way back to uh, Thomas the Apostle. Um, 
And so on, on a, uh, in a, um, earlier on in the year, we discussed a little bit about the Church of the East and the Assyrian Church is, is another name that it's known by, um, today. And it existed from Palestine all the way to China. Um, but its headquarters were in Seleucia, which was the Persian capital in, in Monday, Iraq, actually. Um, and last time we talked about how they, um, set up their own church administration in the third century when Pappas became Catholicos, uh, which was a, a kind of supreme head over the Eastern bishops, a little bit like a pope. Um, and you could call it the first schism with Rome, except that Eastern Christians never considered themselves under the authority of the pope. And Eastern Christians today still um, describe themselves as Orthodox rather than um, Catholic. So this presents a really interesting contrast with, with some of the churches we've been talking about more recently, the churches in Britain and the Alps, um, and those churches basically just ignored Rome as much as they could. But the Church of the East, the church based in Persia, presented an official unified church structure um, in opposition to um, Roman influence. Okay, so this is quite a different kind of church. Yeah, this this is very interesting because if you look at your Celtic churches, your Waldensian churches, and so forth, Mm. they, you know, they weren't the same kind of threat because they were seen as being small and scattered. Mm. I mean, the island of Ionia, if you go there, where the you know the major college was for the Celtic church, is just sort of like a little rock off the uh, western coast of Scotland. But right. here you've got a church that stretches from the Middle East to China. That's actually covering a very large area. Yes. And it's not just covering a large area, but it's covering some very powerful empires. Um, so we're talking about the Mongol Empire. We're talking about the Persian Empire, of course. The Persian Empire, which was constantly fighting wars with um, the, the old eastern half of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. And then... Um, eventually the Islamic Empire, of course the Chinese Empire. So we're dealing with a church, this church was dealing with um, very different kinds of issues than the Celtic church was dealing with. And so they found it necessary quite early on to establish a, a quite a hierarchical church structure just to protect themselves from the uh, political issues they were facing and also the religious pressures from Rome that they, they didn't want anything to do with. And what I find fascinating is that, you know, when the, when the Mongol Empire rises to power, you know, what, uh, 800 years or so after this, maybe 700 years after this uh, particular period here that we're talking about when this is really mm-hmm. established, you've got very large groups of Christians in the Mongol Empire, Mongolian Christians, who've never actually heard of Rome and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when Genghis Khan, you know, heads to the West – it brings these groups in contact with each other and suddenly, you know, you've got the church in Rome. It's like, oh, there's Christians over there. Oh, we'll better send some, <laughs> some ambassadors, ambassadors over yeah. there and make sure they're submitting to the Pope and the ambassadors get there and they're like, well, you're submitting to the Pope? And they're like, who's the Pope? Never heard of the Pope. Why would we submit yeah. to him? So it's a Absolutely. really interesting history from this era. Mm. So the, the background of that is that the Assyrian Christians or some Assyrian Christians fled to live with the Huns and the Turks the Turks, and they actually, well, it's thought that they taught the Turks and the Mongols how to convert their language into a written form. So this is the kind of work that 
um, Bible translators have always done and continue to do today. Groups like Wycliffe Bible Translators who uh, go into remote communities and um, groups of people that don't have any written language. And so how do you share the gospel with a group that doesn't have a written language? Well, you can tell them orally, but if they're going to grow their faith for themselves, they really need scripture. And so how do you give a group scripture if they have to all learn English? Well, that's not going to work very well. Um, They learn best in their mother tongue. And so these groups, um, including the Assyrian church, probably went um, went to these areas developed a written form, a written language for them, and then translated the Bible into that language. And we think that's probably how it happened. And then in the 6th century, um, that group was organized enough that the Catholicos or or the Patriarch um, appointed someone to lead the Church of the Huns. Um, And then when we get to the medieval period, uh, the, the high medieval period, we get writers like Marco Polo, who um of course, traveled widely in the the area of, of the Church of the East. And he was surprised to find Christians living off the coast of the Arabian Peninsula, for example. They didn't recognize Rome, but they were subject to the Catholicos in Baghdad. So the question arises, well, why did the Assyrian Christians have to flee to the Turks and the Mongols and the Huns? Uh, what was so wrong about staying at home, nice and comfortably in Iraq um, and Iran. And the problem was that the state religion of Persia was Zoroastrianism um, since since the third century. Mm. And Christians faced persecution if they blasphemed the sun, which was basically blasphemy against the sun um, was saying it wasn't a living being, which was what Zoroastrians believed. And so it was a similar kind of situation for them then as it is today for many people living in Muslim uh, nations where blasphemy laws are very strictly enforced. Yes, yes. We have have those blasphemy laws and we see terrible things coming as a result of it, terrible persecution. Right, right. So there was was another problem that Christians faced was that um, the Persians saw Christians, of course, they were um, originally from a Jewish religion, and Jewish religion meant Roman religion, and the Persians were at war with the old um, Byzantine Empire. And so there was a question of um, allegiance, basically, that the Assyrian Christians were suspected of um, being traitors, especially in times of war. Um, on top of that, during a fourth century expansionist campaign, by Persia, church members refused to serve in the Persian army. Now, we don't know why. We know the Persians were very upset about this. Um, but many Eastern Christians were ethnic Jews, and Jews had been exempted from military service to Rome in the Roman Empire on the grounds of Sabbath keeping. So that's the possibility um, that that was why many Assyrian Christians didn't want to. Um, be be brought into military service. So when the Shah, the Persian emperor, uh, returned back from an unsuccessful siege against a Christian fortress, he took out his frustration on the Persian Christians. Mm. He doubled their taxes, supposedly to pay for the cost of the war, and to add insult to injury, he ordered the Catholicos 
a man named Shimon or, or Simon to collect this tax. Um, Shimon didn't see why Christians should pay double tax for a war they had nothing to do with, and he refused on principle to enforce what he saw as an unjust law. In response, the Shah ordered church buildings to be destroyed throughout the empire. Uh, we know that churches, church is not the building, it's the people that have fellowship within those buildings, but not having church buildings can can be difficult, can pose a threat to worship. Um, Shimon was also arrested, and he was told that all would be forgiven if he would only worship the sun, um, which is a very familiar story. You know, it reminds us of, of Daniel 3 and the three worthies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told they just had to bow down to this image and all would be forgiven. Um, and... Shimon was either stubborn or courageous because he refused um, and he paid for it with his life and the lives of over a hundred other clergy. So as, as leader of the church, he was making, you know, decisions that didn't just affect himself, um, but affected, had the potential to destroy all the churches from Palestine to China. Um, So, 40 years of persecution followed um, this event in the 4th century based on uh, on the basis of blasphemy, Sabbatarianism, and their refusal to serve in the Persian army. Um, Zoroastrians worshipped the sun on Sunday. So after Shimon followed a succession of Catholics who were executed uh, until not Surprisingly, no one wanted to be the leader of the church. No one wanted to be Catholicos and put a target on their back. And so the office remained vacant for 20 years until the Shah died. When that happened, they elected another one and they reorganized the church. But the persecution didn't stop. It was it went through peaks and troughs of intensity. Persecution had done a couple of things. It had caused believers to flee eastward to found new churches Um, like in further missionary work in India and in China and to the Mongols. Um, But it also had fired the zeal of the believers who stayed behind in Persia, as as persecution often does even today. Um, We might wonder whether um, the church in the West today is so lackadaisical and Laodicean because it's, cheap to be Christian. Um, there's, our, our convictions aren't tested. Yes, like it, was a, it was a discussion that Lawson and I were having the other morning. We were talking about persecution in China and, and Lawson made mm-hmm. the statement that, you know, maybe it's better if the persecution doesn't end in China because of, you know, the purity of the Christianity that it produces compared to what we have in the West where things are mm-hmm. so easy. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, you tell this story about, uh, you know, persecution in the East and Eastern Christianity, and and, and it it really does seem like this is an area of the world where persecution just seems to be very old, has been there for a very, very long time. Mm. Well, there there are religions and ideologies in those parts of the world that are very strong, and we we don't really have anything comparable in the West, um, or at least not at the moment. And you know, scripture tells us that persecution and trouble must come, but woe unto him by whom it comes. 
you know, where as much as persecution can have a silver lining, um, I really respect the work of groups like the Australian Christian Lobby, who, um, who even though you know their mission might be uh, a doomed one to some extent, um, it's I think it's still important to organise as a church and to um, engage with government as much as we can while keeping our integrity um, to limit the scope of that persecution. Yes. And um, that's certainly what the, the Assyrian church tried to do in, in organising. That was one of their aims. Um, so the church in the East is really admirable for sticking to scripture and refusing to compromise with other religions around them for the sake of its own comfort. Um, that was really its biggest um, its biggest note of difference with the Roman Catholic Church. But Eastern Christians still made big mistakes. In the early 5th century, the Persian bishop of Susa destroyed a Zoroastrian temple um, without knowing the circumstances. It's still hard to imagine any motive other than intolerance, perhaps retribution. Um, in any case, this bishop was ordered to rebuild the temple. He refused, and the Shah retaliated by systematically destroying every church in Persia. Yeah, um, wow. yeah. <laughs> so high stakes. And along with the general destruction, mobs tortured Christians and pillaged their homes, um, and it only really ended with the death of that Shah. So we're about out of time. Um, how can we how can we summarize this whole story of the history of Christianity in Persia? Where does where does it go to, and where does it end up? Well, after these centuries of Zoroastrian persecution and Roman accusations, Muslim rule came to the Eastern Christians in about 650, and it came as a relief. Um, the Byzantine and Persian empires were exhausted from fighting each other for centuries, and the Muslims rapidly swept through from North Africa all the way to Central Asia. And that's where we'll have to pick up the story for next time, because the story of, of Christianity under Muslim rule is very different mm-hmm. uh, to that of Persian rule. Absolutely. Well, I certainly look forward to it. The history of the church in the East is a, a very unknown history, really, and, and I appreciate mm. you've been really highlighting some of the more obscure uh, aspects of Christian history here on The Breakfast Show. Mm. We have to move on because we are out of time. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.